We'll take this time to dismiss the first grade and kindergartners. And if you haven't have your Bibles open, let's have those open to Mark chapter 12. My main pursuit in this text comes from verse 34. Jesus has informed the scribe that he is not far from the kingdom of God. And I want to ask, what's left? I get to the end of the passage and Jesus says, well, man, you're not far. But then that's all he says. And I want to say, well, what's left? I mean, I'm glad I'm not far, but I want to know how to get all the way into the kingdom of God. The scribes seem to be asking an honest question about the greatest commandment. He gets what seems to be a very clear answer that there are two. Yet, in the end, the scribe is still short of the kingdom of God. Jesus telling the scribe that he's not far from the kingdom of heaven seems to me like telling somebody they're They weren't far from jumping all the way across the Grand Canyon. You know, whether you're not very far from jumping all the way across or not, it's still a long way down either way. So I'm trying to get at here in this text what's left. And we're going to have to have this Holy Spirit to help us see this. So let's pray together. Lord, we come here and we need something that we can't manufacture on our own. And that is eyes to see what you see. Now, the scribe sees something, and we need to see that. But there's something left to be seen. And I'm praying that today, this day in May, in the year 2007, that all of our eyes would be open to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Most of you know that John Wesley is the founder of the Methodist Church. He has a famous brother named Charles who wrote over 8,000 hymns, a number of them that we sing. John was born in 1703, and he was born into a pastor's family. Twenty-five years later, in 1728, he was ordained a priest in the Church of England. Following the ordination, he lived in Oxford in England. And as he got to Oxford, he joined what was called the Holy Club, a group of people who got together, very religious in their practices. They prayed for an hour every day. They fasted two days a week. They memorized scripture. They um, went to prisons and preached to prisoners there, and they gave their money away to the poor. In 1735, Wesley accepts a call to be a missionary to Indians in Georgia. There was a missionary agency that was trying to bring the gospel to America and particularly to the Indians that were living in Georgia. And so in 1735, he leaves on a ship sailing from England to America. Wesley himself considered the missionary effort a disaster. Largely because when he got there... When he got to Georgia, he discovered that he himself was not a Christian. And so from his journal, he has a fairly famous quote saying, I went to America to convert the Indians, but oh, who shall convert me? 
By God's design, while he was crossing the Atlantic, Wesley encountered a group of Moravian missionaries who had a very simple but very deep and profound faith. They had a very large impact on Wesley as he watched their lives on board this ship. And as he got back to England, London specifically, he then sought after, well, some Moravian meetings. And he began to find himself going to those meetings. On the morning of May the 24th, 1738, ten years after John Wesley had been ordained as a priest, a few years after he'd come back from the mission field, this lost clergyman opened up his Bible And he read Mark chapter 12, verse 34. And what he discovered was Jesus talking to another lost clergyman. And he was telling this lost clergyman, you're not far from the kingdom of God. And Wesley wanted to know, well, what's left? He found himself in the same shoes of this scribe some 2,000 years before. So let's go back and set this verse in its context. If you were here last week, you know that Jesus has just come off this little Q&A session. If you can picture in your mind, it's the last week before the Passover. There's maybe millions, a million or two million people who have flooded into little Jerusalem. You see the Temple Mount from a long distance. It's the highest point in Jerusalem. And the Temple Mount area is a very large plateau. And at one end is the Temple. And at different places during that week, people would gather. And particularly they would come and have some question and answers with the rabbis that were in that area. And Jesus is in that area and he's having this back and forth. And there would be large crowds of people around Jesus. Everybody knew who Jesus was. And he's having these questions. And he comes across a group of Sadducees who have been asking him just in the previous verses about the resurrection. Well, the scribe apparently has overheard this teacher, this rabbi, and he thinks that the that Jesus has answered the question about eternity and resurrection. Well, the 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 scribe, if you're reading out of the NIV, it'll say a teacher of the law. So imagine this. They're in this big huddle of people. Jesus is having this Q&A with the Sadducees, a little back and forth and this lawyer. This religious lawyer is leaning in and he's he's looking at the confrontation and he's appreciating Jesus's rebuttal. And then he comes forward himself and he has a question for Jesus. And it's a very hotly debated question in the religious circles of that time. And the question was, which of the commandments is the most important commandment? You see, in Jesus's day, the scribes had broken down the Old Testament into 613 separate laws. Now, you thought 10 were tough to keep. How about if you had 613? And so this poor scribe is coming forward to Jesus, who's been giving good answers and says, hey, what's the most important one? And I think the scribe is asking this question about priority. He's saying, can, can you sort of give me the top command? It's difficult for me to measure myself up against 613, but if you can just give me one, then I can see if I'm making some progress. I can see how I look compared to others or compared to the law. 
And my guess is most of us have that same mentality. We spend a lot of our time trying to measure ourselves up against the law or up against each other. Like a child in my house, there's a doorway and several of you have your initials there of how tall you were at this point and then the marks keep going up. And if you come to my house and you've got your name on there, you're going to back yourself up against it and stretch yourself up as tall as you can because you want to see how tall you are compared to yourself before or how tall you are compared to somebody else. And so the scribe wants something to measure himself up against. And we do that. We say things like, well, maybe I gossip, but at least I don't sleep around. Or you say in your mind, well, maybe you have a problem with anger, but I'm no murderer. Or I'm not perfect, but I'm not as bad as. And so we all have this mentality. We begin to measure ourselves up against the law. We measure ourselves up against each other. I think it's important to remember the context of the scribe's question. He's been listening to Jesus talk about the resurrection. That there really is life after this life. And the scribe comes in and says, I want to know how I can get into that life. How can I get into the kingdom of God? I'm sort of on this kingdom and I hear and believe that there is another life out there and I'd like to know how to get into it. But these 613 laws, I can't quite figure this out. Can you just boil it down somehow and give me one? And Jesus doesn't hesitate to answer and he responds with two. Well, two, that sure beats 613. It beats 10. And so this little Q&A takes up on the Temple Mount. And certainly there will be a number of people around Jesus and the scribe. And when Jesus says, I can give you two. You can imagine all the people around getting their stone tablets and chisels out. And they're ready to get the answer down. Here the great rabbi is going to just give us two commands. you got to get this down. Hey, hurry up before he spits it out so you can hear it yourself. And that's sort of the picture that we have. And Jesus gives a quote, two quotes from the Old Testament. The first, he says, the most important, or in the Greek, the place to begin. In other words, you can't go anywhere else until you've got this step down. This is the chief. This is the most important thing. It comes from Deuteronomy 6.4, which is something every Jewish person would have repeated a couple of times a day. And he says this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. And with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. Notice this, all, 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 four times. You know what all means in the Greek? All, that's what it means. And so he means everything. A couple of definitions that I ran across. Sinclair Ferguson writes this about this verse. The very first law requires comprehensive, universal, undiluted love for God with every ounce of one's being. Comprehensive, universal, undiluted love for God with every ounce of one's being. William Lane in his commentary says this, To love God in the way defined by the great commandment is to seek God for his own sake. 
to have pleasure in him, to strive impulsively after God. It's your first impulse to go after the things of God. Jesus demands a decision and readiness for God and for God alone in an unconditional manner. Listen carefully to one of these lines. To love God means to seek God for God's sake, not for your sake. The second law is like it, meaning the second law is an extension of the first one. If you're doing the first one, the second, the second thing is just going to extend out naturally from the first. You can't do the second until you got the first one down. But once you've got the first one down, then you're able to move out into the second one, and that is to love your neighbor as yourself. The golden rule, as we'd like to say, grows out of an all-out love affair with God. If you don't have an all-out love affair with God, you're not going to be able to accomplish very well the second great commandment. John Piper's description says this of this commandment. This command seems to demand that I tear the skin off my body, wrap it around another person, so I feel that I am the other person. All the longings that I have for my own safety, my own health, success, happiness, I now feel For the other person as though he were me. Hear that again. This second law, love your neighbor as yourself, is something like tearing the skin off of your body and wrapping it around someone else so that all of their longings, whether it was for success or happiness or health or safety, you would feel those for them just as you would for yourself. Now, let's stop here and just do a little check of our gauges. You know, when you're driving in your car, every once in a while, you're just going to glance down. You're going to check your gauges. You know, oil lights on. Am I going too fast? Anything wrong with the battery or the engine? Let's just stop. Jesus has done us a tremendous favor. He's boiled everything down to just these two commands so you can sort of look at the dashboard of your life and say, how am I doing on these two gauges? What, what do I look like? What's my condition now? If I were to measure myself up against these two things, how would I look? First, if you want to get into the kingdom of God, you're going to have to have a comprehensive, universal, undiluted love for God which flows out of every pore of your being, and you're going to have to love God for God's sake alone. The second one is you're going to have to tear the skin off your body and act as if you're wrapping it around someone else so that all of their needs you have the same sort of passion for. When you stand up, when you look at your gauges, how are you doing? How do you feel? I want you to notice how the crowd felt. Verse 34. The crowd with their chisels and stone tablets just ready to peck out these two commandments are stunned. 
No one dared ask one more question. Maybe like a boxer that's just so tired, they can't swing one more time. They're so overwhelmed. They're so staggered by what Jesus has said. They can't lift their lips for one more comment. As soon as he gets to the end, it's totally quiet. Nobody can ask even one more thing. Why, why do you think when they read this, they were stunned into silence? Well, I'll let you wrestle with that one. I don't have time to answer that question, so you have to think about that one on yourself. Let's go back to the scribe. You might say the scribe, or I'm going to say the scribe, has taken the first step. He, he was some distance from the kingdom. He's gotten closer. So Jesus says, you're not far. And I think this is really helpful for me personally. It's, it's helpful for me as a Christian. It's certainly helpful for me as I talk to other people about Christ. In one conversation, the man didn't make it all the way there. He got some distance. He moved some way. He moved positively, but he didn't get it all at one time. You're not going to get grace all at one time. You're not going to get it all over the whole course of your life, but you can begin making progress towards it. When you're having a conversation with somebody, don't leave saying they just didn't get it all. You don't have it all. So you can expect and anticipate that your friends, that you can just hope and pray for some movement. They're just moving in the right direction. They're beginning to see some things now that they didn't see before. And that's what happens with the scribe. He's, if you're a child here, you play this game where it's the hot and cold game. You ever play this game? Somebody hides something in the room and, you know, they're trying to go find it. And, oh, you're cold. You're freezing. You know, you're going in the wrong direction. And then you get right next to it, but you can't find it. You're burning up. You're on fire. You know, all that kind of language. Well, the scribe's not on fire, but he's getting warmer. He's moving towards the right answer here. The scribe listens to what Jesus says. And this is what the scribe says after he hears Jesus. You're right. Now, I think this is funny. And I wish Mark would be able to sort of communicate Jesus's expressions at moments like this. The scribe has looked at the creator of the whole world and informed the creator of the whole world. He got it right. And I wonder what Jesus, you know, I just want to know what his expression is. Like, thanks. Yeah. You know, you'll have that when I answer questions. You know, I don't know sort of what the, the flavor is, but I just think it's really funny that the scribe says, well, Jesus, good job. Way to go. You really nailed that one. Now, the scribe does understand something here. He clearly is making progress. And Jesus is encouraged by the progress. And the scribe sees something that John Wesley had to see. And the scribe sees something that you and I, if we desire to get into the kingdom of God, we must see this. No one enters the kingdom of God without seeing what the scribe saw. So let's take a look at that. The answer is in verse 33. 
He says to love God with all of your heart and with all understanding and with all your strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more, which is really not the best translation. It's more like super abundant. It's, it's, it's enormously more than all forms of offerings and sacrifices. What happens is the light comes on for the scribe. He's standing in the temple area. And what happens in this temple area? Sacrifices and offerings. So he's looking around, and what he is assessing, and what he is seeing, is that all of his offerings, all of his sacrifices, all of his prayers, all of his fastings, all of his visits to people in prison, all of his money given to capital campaigns, none of those things can make up for the deficit that he has in his own life to love God with all of his heart and to love his neighbor as himself. He cannot obey the law enough. And when he realizes he can't obey the law and he gives some sacrifices or he gives some services, he's still woefully short. And he realizes it. He looks around and says, I know I can't keep the law. There's 613. And now you've just given me two. And instead of making it easier, I can't even do these two. And when I can't do the two, and I just give some money, or I give some of my time, or I really pray really hard, none of those things can bridge the gap. And you and I must hear that. Many of us operate like this. I'm doing my best. I'm trying to keep the laws. And I know I'm not perfect. And when I'm not perfect, I try to give some more money or I try to give some more time. I try to do something to sort of make up for the deficit. And what the scribe sees is there is no offerings or no sacrifices he can make that could possibly make up for the difference. There's no way he can get there on his own. And he realizes that. And when he realizes that, Jesus leaps on him. Okay. Okay. Now. Now you're not far. He realized something about himself. And when he realized it, that there isn't any goodness that he can perform, there are no sacrifices that he can offer that somehow builds a bridge over to God, and he realizes his hopeless condition, no matter what kind of life he leads, he cannot make it there, then Jesus says, all right, now you're getting warmer. You're getting close. So I return to my opening statement. What's left? Aren't you just a little frustrated that the guy did take a step forward and Jesus didn't say, well, okay, here's the second step. That he somehow, at least in the text, sort of leaves the man to ponder. I made some progress, but apparently there's some more progress to be made. I wonder what that is. I think you know the answer. The answer comes three days later. What's left to see? Once you see that you can't fulfill the law, is to see that someone else can. 
is to see that someone has come to fulfill the law and do it precisely because you cannot. The Apostle Paul saw this clearly, Philippians. If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, which was what the scribe had done before he'd come to Jesus, he thought he was keeping it, and then he realized, "Uh, I'm not keeping it. Paul thought he was. If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I'm of the people of Israel. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law, I'm a Pharisee. As for legalistic righteousness, I'm faultless. Anybody can measure themselves up next to me, and nobody compares. That's what Paul's saying. And yet, I would consider all of that rubbish. All of that is waste. Whatever was to my profit, whatever I thought I was bringing forward saying, Christ, do you see how I was obedient here? Do you see how sacrificial I was here? Isn't that what you're looking for? Whatever I was bringing forward like it was to my profit, I'm now considering it a complete loss for the sake of Christ. I'm considering them rubbish. All of your good deeds done with the hope that Jesus Christ would like you better are waste. And that's what the scribe sees. That's what Paul sees. They're rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ alone. Three days later, the scribe will see the perfect picture of a person who can obey these two commands. Now, we don't know if this scribe is at the cross, but certainly he would have heard about it. And if he was there, he would have seen what it means to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. Jesus Christ died on a cross for no gain to himself. He did not gain anything by dying on the cross. You gain. But he loved. You remember in the Garden of Gethsemane? As a human, I don't want to go through this. But what does he say? Not my, I'm not for my gain. I'm not living my life for my gain. I'm doing everything for your sake, God. I'm loving you perfectly as you command. And on the cross, you would see, the scribe would see, love for your neighbor. Literally, Jesus ripped off his skin so he could wrap it around you. His flesh had to be torn off of his body so he could cover you with his righteousness. On the cross, we see the person who fulfills all of the law. We read about what happened to John Wesley on the morning of May the 24th. He opens his Bible. 
He reads about a lost clergyman. He sees himself. You're not far from the kingdom of God. Wesley had taken the first step. He'd already seen that he couldn't keep the law. Even his own missionary efforts, all of his sacrifices, all of his prayers and gifts to the poor, visit to prisoners, they didn't matter. The same day, May the 24th, that evening, Wesley, in his famous statement in his journal, tells of his second step. And I quote, In the evening, I went very unwillingly to a society on Aldersgate Street, where one was reading Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans. About a quarter of nine, while he was describing the change which God worked in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt that I trusted in Christ and in Christ alone for salvation. An assurance was given me that Jesus has taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. So my question for you. Have you taken the first step? You see, you can be a pastor for 10 years and not have taken the first step. You can be a pastor's kid and not have ever taken the first step. You can think that I'm doing enough and what I'm not doing well, I'm giving some sacrifices for and I think that's going to do it for me and you can be lost. And if you're not far, you're still a long way from the end. But moving in that direction is to see the absolute poverty of you making progress towards God by yourself. So my question is, have you taken the first step? My next question is, have you taken the second? Once you see your own poverty... Have you trusted in Christ alone? Let's pray together. Lord, we don't know who this person was that read where John Wesley's heart was strangely warmed. You, by your divine design, come into the hearts and lives of people in all kinds of settings. We, we know what happened on May the 24th. And I'm praying right now for that same kind of movement. Maybe in the life of the most religious person here. That they never really understood their total depravity. They've always lived as if they were good enough. For those who see the emptiness in themselves and have tried to fill it with other things, I pray that today would be a day that they would see and trust in Christ alone. That they would be able to come back to this day in May in the year 2007 and say, something happened in my heart that day because of the truth of the gospel. That you came. 
You took on my sin. And your flesh was ripped off and wrapped around me so that I might have entry into the kingdom of God. Lord, I'm aware as we take the offering that there's all kinds of needs financially. I just don't want anybody here to give money thinking that's part of their sacrifice. You love a cheerful giver. Someone who understands that all of their sins were taken on by Christ. Move in the hearts of those people to give generously. So that word might be proclaimed around the city and around the world. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.